0: Lord, we do lift Nancy up to you and pray that you'd work in her body and, and allow uh, her to feel some relief and and um, also find some healing from uh, the trouble that she's having. Just pray, Lord, that you would um, comfort her and um, just allow us to see, uh, show us, Lord, how we could be a ministry to her and, and her family during this time as well. Lord, we pray that you would
1: bless our time in your word. Lord, um, you know how heavy it can seem or, or maybe just um, how strong a message of who Christ is and what he has done is uh, to
0: proclaim. And Lord, I pray that um, you would go far beyond and above. Any of my ability to communicate or,
1: or to grasp, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would, would open up our minds and allow us to see things,
0: allow us to understand, and even not what I'm saying, Lord, but just as we learn about your Son as being eternal and self-existent and the Creator
1: God, a member of the Trinity, and yet came to earth and and lived with us and and died and rose again to redeem us. That's just awesome. Just pray, Father, that that your word would be
0: accurately represented for what it says this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of John kind of starts sort of oddly or a gospel uh, whereas the other gospels either start with um, showing the lineage of Jesus from uh Adam or uh from David and and um and jump right into the stories and the teachings and things like that. John takes 18 verses of what's called the prologue or I think maybe we would better understand it as an introduction of of theology of who this Jesus is. And as we mentioned last week, it's kind of like the key of a map that as you're looking over a map and you want to know what are the symbols that are there, what are the lines and what are the the objects, what do they represent, and the key of the map kind of allows you to understand those things, the, those first verses of the Gospel of John really sets out for us what John wants us to know about this person of Jesus. As it was said, it took John three years to grasp this, and he didn't want us to go past three verses without knowing who this person is. But he does it in kind of a, an interesting introductory way. Um, maybe if you've watched political conventions or other conferences that you might have been to or seen on TV. I know um, for uh, Hannah's uh, government class, we um, had to watch – not had to watch, but we watched with her the Republican and Democrat conventions um, at this past election. And, and many of these times, someone will have the honor of introducing a VIP um they, they kind of give a speech to introduce the speaker. It's kind of interesting that way. And, and think of some of these introductions you might have seen at some of these rallies. Or if you haven't seen it, I'll try to describe to you. Um, sometimes a person decides to run through the, the person's accomplishments um, rather than saying their name. Okay? They don't just get up and say, I'm here to introduce Bob. You know, Bob is this. They, they might get up there and, and say, the person that I have the pleasure to introduce is the only man to have brought unity in dark times, right? And they may even go on further and produce what other respected people have said about the person. They might say, our own chairman has described this man as being the one who, on whom we can place our hope you know and they they'll just go on and on before they even say the name until finally they give the name they say i present to you bob you know and and before they even say the name you know it's built up to such a a frenzy and and this is what john's introduction to jesus is like at the beginning of his gospel so I'll read back through this these introductory verses again this
1: morning and and it starts with, in the beginning was the Word. I'm getting there. I'll get there. I'm clicking it. There we go. Make sure it's going to work. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Always working these things out. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word
0: was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, all that, might, that all might believe through him. He was not the light For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This morning, we're simply looking at part two of when, in which John is presenting the object of our trust. And for all of his gospel, he is saying this is the object of our trust, the object of our faith, what we should be putting our faith in, this person. Now, you might recall last week's main idea that we looked at was that we should not miss, don't miss the significance of who Jesus is. We learned from the first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our emphasis was on the person of Jesus Christ. John was referring to Jesus as being the Word. And that by this he meant that Jesus is the final message, the final wisdom of God, the first and final wisdom of God for us. And he was this in what he taught, in what he did, and in who he is. John closes with verse 18. the introductory verses, where he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. We dove into the fact that Jesus is described as being a member of the Trinity last week, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We unpacked how John describes Him as being eternal and self-existent. And John did this by describing Jesus as having been in the beginning with God, being God, and yet being with God. John uses a writing technique that's called inclusio by summarizing his first idea from verse 1 with his last statement of verse 18. You see how they relate together. This is why he describes Jesus' work as he does in verse 18, saying that no one has ever seen God, oh, except for God, who was at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So he's repeating this idea of Jesus being both God and a part of the Trinity by saying, no one has ever seen God. The only God at the Father's side, He has made God known. So it's the same sort of meandering that we're left with doing if we're going to explain the Trinity basically. So that's why it's confusing. Jesus is the only God, just as the Father and the Holy Spirit are the only God, all members of the Trinity. He came to make God known, and this is what John is writing about, how Jesus made God known as the God-man on earth. So this morning we're just our main idea is don't miss the significance of
1: what Jesus has done. And it's embodied in verse 14. Where it says, The Word became flesh
0: and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.
1: Jesus is God in the flesh, and he has changed our world forever.
0: A writer named Henry G. Bosch wrote, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends and impacts the impact left by the three combined." one of 130 years of teaching men who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity jesus painted no pictures yet some of the finest paintings of raphael michelangelo and leonardo da vinci received their inspiration from him jesus wrote no poetry but dante milton and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him jesus composed no music Still, Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, and oratories they composed in his praise. Every sphere, he writes, every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. So much of our passage this morning is laying out the topics of John's gospel we'll be touching on. One of these major topics has to do with the sources of testimony that Jesus is the Christ. John the Baptist is the first of seven witnesses brought forward in this gospel. And it's re- these witnesses are referring to Jesus' position of being the God name being that John is going to bust right into the witness of John the Baptist in the coming verses. He gives us kind of a heads up about him here in his introduction. And we see this in the first testimony for Jesus. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light and that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The fact that John the Baptist's testimony um, to the importance of Jesus as the light, this is significant. It's especially significant for the Jewish readers of this gospel. It's significant enough that he's described in all four gospels and his impact in his ministry. His ministry was significant to the nation of Israel, partly because he was the closest thing to a prophet that they had seen in over four hundred years when he came on the scene and it had been foretold that john the baptist would be the forerunner of the christ we're told he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him while other gospels go into john the baptist's birth or his character our gospel focuses strictly here on his function and his function was to prepare the people Of Israel for the presentation of their Messiah. What we see in this statement is that John's witness was so that all might believe through his ministry. As we discussed last week, this term of this use of the term believe is the first of 97 times that it's going to be used in the Gospel of John. Again, this Gospel centers around the importance of people placing their faith in Jesus for their salvation. We're told that John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Our author is sharing with us, John the Apostle, is sharing with us from his own personal experience of having been a follower of John the Baptist prior to Jesus coming on the scene. Not that he would have thought John the Baptist was the Christ, But he brings up the fact that John had a job to do of pointing to the true light. And we'll find that John the Baptist did his job and he did it well. As we read about John the Baptist in the coming weeks, we will learn how to be an effective disciple maker. And John is pointing to one of John the Baptist's best qualities. He directed others to Christ rather than to himself. And that is an important part of being an effective disciple maker. So with that quality pointed out, John moves us from the witness to the subject of the witness's account. We move from the one that was not the light to the one who was the true light, which gives light to everyone. And we see in this the tragedy and the triumph of Jesus. nor of the will of man, but of God. The idea of Jesus coming into the world is a common theme of the Gospel of John. The world will be referred to 78 times in this Gospel, most of the time referring to sinful humanity. Jesus is described as the true light coming into our world, into this world of sinful humanity. It's not describing Jesus as Bringing to everyone the understanding of spiritual truth. That's that's what we assume when we read this, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Instead, it's the fact that Jesus made the truth available, and he brought the judgment that comes along with that. Soon we'll read from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in which Jesus will tell him in verse 19 of chapter 3, this is the judgment. The light has come
1: into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. The
0: tragedy of these verses is shown in the summary description of Jesus being rejected, that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. Jesus was rejected by the very world that he participated in creating. The very sinful humanity that he created in the first place before it fell into sin. The NIV states this as the world did not recognize him. And the original term here that's used for either know or recognize is an interesting one. It's not just that sinful humanity wasn't able to understand him or accept him on an intellectual level. The tense of the verb here points to our willful
1: refusal to accept or believe in Jesus as the Creator God. It's more than just that we
0: didn't have the ability to see him for what he is. We would not
1: put him in his place of honor. Created. We wouldn't recognize him. My prayer for you is that we go as we go through John, is that you won't just see Jesus. My prayer is that you will be moved to daily bow your knee to him as your Savior and Lord. What's even more
0: tragic in this summary is how. Jesus' own people are described. It says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. God's own chosen people, the Jews, should have recognized him for who he is. They should have been prepared for their Messiah through the words of the law and the prophets. This also will be a major theme of the Gospel of John. The first twelve chapters will be dedicated to Jesus showing signs of His position and teaching about who He is. But this section will culminate in one of the closing verses of John 12, where it says, "Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him." And what's interesting is that verse 13, or chapter 13 picks up.
1: With saying where Jesus, where it's transitioning into the last night before Jesus' crucifixion,
0: and it says, "Having loved his own, he loved them to the end." Now notice here where where the, John begins, he came to his own, speaking of Israel, but his own did not receive him, and then it transitions. We'll see it transition in chapter twelve, where it's talking about his disciples as his own. And that's why from 12 to 13, we say a major break in the Gospel of John, going from Jesus reaching out to his people, Israel, to his focus on
1: his disciples. A major part that John is pointing out to us. This section, as I mentioned, culminates in
0: this idea that his people still did not believe in him. As the case throughout biblical history, when God is rejected, there's another side of the coin. In this case, the other side of the coin is the grace of redemption that's available for us as Gentiles. And so we see a part of this tragedy and triumph of Jesus is redemption. Where he says, but... He says, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. These two verses are bursting with the grace of the gospel for those who trust in Christ. And these ideas of what is required for a person to be saved will come up again and again. While the other Gospels highlight these truths through parables, John will deal with the nitty-gritty of what it means to receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. And, And Jesus will teach on this in the presence of people that are saying, what are you talking about? No way.
1: We're told all who receive him, who believe in his name, these people are described as.
0: In contrast with the Jewish leaders who reject Christ despite their training and traditions which pointed to him, the simplicity of following Christ is described as simply receiving him. But this is a deeper idea than a merely intellectual agreement. With the facts of Jesus. Receiving him involves welcoming and submitting to him in a personal relationship. The same way that you might receive a friend into your home. Come in.
1: I know you. I recognize you. You, you belong here. Be my guest. Or in Jesus' case, be my savior. Be my Lord.
0: There's a reason why receiving Jesus is also described as believing in his name. To believe in his name is to entrust oneself to all that is true about him. It means to accept all that he has revealed about himself, to receive him as he truly is, our Savior God. As the gospel unfolds, we'll learn of the details of who Jesus is, the God-man who is our atoning sacrifice for sin. And we recognize that to receive Him as our Savior means to recognize I can't have a relationship with God on my own. And it's to come to a place of realizing I am bankrupt. I owe too much for my sins than I will ever be able to pay. But thank God that God Himself paid for my sins by dying in my place. And that he was powerful enough that death could not hold him, but he was raised from the grave by his own power and because of who he is. And that by receiving him as my Savior, I can have his righteousness credited to my account in place
1: of my debt of sin. And the Gospel of John will lead us through that again and again.
0: We're told that those who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And a person who receives or entrusts Jesus has one of the greatest benefits package that has ever existed. A follower of Christ is described as having the authority to claim to be God's child. And I'm not just claiming it in terms of playing the part but claiming it in terms of owning it. It's not a right that we start working at. It's not a right that we hope to achieve in this relationship with God. It is a regeneration that happens upon the person receiving Christ as their Savior. We'll learn later on about how the coming of the Holy Spirit, through His coming, that we we then know that a person is immediately indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit upon receiving Christ as their Savior. And that Holy Spirit is given to them as a pledge of their inheritance,
1: like an engagement ring is given to a woman as a pledge of marriage. I brought with me something that's pretty uh, special to me. Um, This is um, a
0: document from the Liberian Courts. It's uh, Emmett's do- uh, adoption decree. Um, if you ask to read it later, I'll say no, just because we protect details that are in hearing stuff. But um, just to read a paragraph here from it. it says: "It is hereby ordered and decreed that from the date hereof henceforth, the child Emmett shall be all legal, shall to all legal intents and purposes be the adopted child." of the petitioners aforesaid, which up here is John Bowman and Kelly Bowman, and that the said child, Emmett, from today's date shall be known, regarded, and called Emmett Bowman. And for the purpose of inheritance and all legal consequences shall be the same as if Emmett was born out of the body of John and Kelly Bowman, in the bond of holy matrimony. I mean, how special is that? That's what adoption is. It's to say that Emmett will be seen as if he were born just as
1: Hannah or Micaiah Bowman were. From John and Kelly Bowman. Our adoption into God's family
0: because of our trust in the person and work of Christ is just as real. Hebrews two eleven states that even Jesus, and this is a quote, is not ashamed
1: to call us brothers or sisters of you. Are. We talk a lot about the importance
0: of following of followers of Christ being convinced of our identity in Christ. The enemy of our Lord can do nothing to cause us to fall out of a relationship, out of our relationship with God as his child, but what he can do is lie to us, And we can believe it. And if we believe his lies, it will affect the way that we are able to live out our faith. We may even live as if we are not God's children. It will also affect our relationship with each other as we clamor for acceptance from other sources.
1: But all the while, what we really need is to realize all that we have in Christ as God's adopted child.
0: It's about realizing that God has met our greatest need for acceptance, for recognition, for significance, for significance for intimacy. He's met all of these in our relationship with Him in Christ. It's about being secure enough because of our adoption as God's children that we're free to risk it all.
1: And when we're willing to offer everything as a sacrifice of praise, life takes on the significance that it should. but this right to a place in God's family is contrasted
0: with the misconception of the Jewish leaders. And we read again and again of people proudly and ignorantly claiming their right to God in this gospel. These claims will be because of their being descendants of Abraham or because of their following the traditions that date back to Moses. So John tells us right from the start about how this is a misconception on their part a person who is adopted as god's child it's not because of they were physically born it's not because of the will of the flesh if you will say or the will of man the way that a child is normally conceived but because they were born of god and we'll learn from john 3 no
1: one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again this is what jesus will be getting at And, and the contrast between verse 11,
0: that even though Jesus came into his own and his own did not receive him, and verse 12, that those who did receive him and, and believed on his name, they gave, were given the right to be called children of God. This contrast lays out a major theme of the Gospel of John. We'll see the plot thicken as Jesus' followers grow in their understanding of grace. We'll also sadly see that those who reject Jesus will grow more stubborn in their blindness. And how is it that Jesus is able to do all of this in his short life that he lived on this earth? What is it about him that made it so that receiving him, believing in his name, means our salvation? Still without saying his name yet, John moves into the theological significance of something called the incarnation of Jesus, we're told the Word became flesh. This one, Jesus, who had been described earlier as the Word, who was with God, he was in the beginning, he was God, he is God. This message, this man, whose his entire message is God's message for his entire life is God's message for us. We're told he became flesh. And by saying the word became flesh, John is saying that Jesus took on all original human characteristics. I say original human characteristics because he didn't take on himself what is a result of our sinful choices. But he did not simply appear to be a man. He doesn't simply look or simply act like a man. Jesus became human and yet retained the essence of being 100% God. Now, people who followed Gnostic doctrines at this time of John's writing this would have considered this statement to be ridiculous. The Greek readers would have considered this statement to be ridiculous. Recall, Gnostics thought that it was unthinkable that God would take on earthly flesh, and I believe John specifically shows the Greek word for flesh, which is sarx, for this purpose. He could have said that Jesus was a man using the term anthropos. He could have said that Jesus took on a human body using the term soma. Instead, he used the term sarx, which usually in Scripture refers to the carnal aspects of being human. Fleshliness. By saying Jesus took on flesh John is highlighting how the gospel disagrees the gospel disagrees with Gnostic thought of the day. We think of Jesus taking on what is
1: thought to be carnal flesh when we refer to the incarnation of of Christ. This is made clear throughout the New Testament especially in the book of Hebrews
0: where in Hebrews 2.14 we're told since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death that is the devil so we see in this verse that Jesus taking on flesh and blood is the key to, is part of the key to his being, our atoning sacrifice for us. As well, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, we read about Jesus as our perfect high priest. We're told, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We Because in... But one, we, okay, I've messed this up. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as
1: we are, yet without sin, because he took on flesh. Let us then with
0: confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we learn that Jesus' ability to sympathize
1: and give help is because he took on flesh. We're told back in verse 14, the word dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory
0: as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A number of you have shared with me that you look forward to the, the Jewish significance of Jesus' teaching in, in the Gospel of John. And, and I think that's wise too, and I think that's great. We spoke about the fact that John wanted to help his Jewish readers find their completion in Christ, especially as he wrote after the, the temple had been destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. <clears throat> Here we come to a major instance of the author making an appeal to his Jewish readers.
1: After the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt, God directed them to build a tabernacle. It
0: was understood that God's glory resided in that tabernacle and in the Tent of Meeting when Moses would go and meet with God. And the same was true of the temple built in Jerusalem. When John describes Jesus as having taken on flesh and dwelt among us,
1: the verb literally means Jesus pitched his tent or tabernacle among us. When John gives testimony to this as having seen
0: Jesus' glory, this statement carries huge meaning for the Jews. And this introduces the theme of Jesus being the final replacement of the tabernacle and temple with the glory of God permanently residing within him. And it permanently resides within him, as John says, because he is the one and only Son from the Father, the one and only embodiment. Finally, John provides us with three arguments for Jesus being the one and only Son. The first is John's testimony. This is why he dips back into John's testimony here. He's kind of proving from from different aspects why it is that he says that Jesus is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist again, was extremely respected by the Jewish people. In Jewish culture, rank was very much affected by the age of the person. But John the Baptist was older by Jesus by six months. He also started his ministry long before Jesus began to preach. Yet John testifies that Jesus ranks before him because Jesus existed before him. Here John, the author of the gospel, is summarizing the testimony of John the Baptist as he states John's testimony in a way that allowed verse 1 to hit home that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's using the argument of John as a summary of John's ministry of John saying, He existed
1: before me. That's why I direct you to Him. John the Baptist recognized Jesus as being
0: eternal, self-existent God and testified of him being so. And the second argument made for Jesus being the one and only Son is that he is the source of unlimited grace, grace upon grace. He says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The NIV describes us as receiving one blessing after another from Jesus' fullness. You know, um, my sister, when she and her family were visiting the ocean um, sometime, I think probably in South Carolina, and they had kind of either a condo or a hotel room on the beach, they decided one night they were going to leave the windows open so that they could hear the surf. And um, at some point in the night, both of them woke up like physically sick. From sea because as they listened to the waves, they kept dreaming like they were on a boat. This is like what I would happen to me. Um, and, and so they, like, one of them got up and was like, went and shut the window, you know, to get the dreams to stop.
1: But that sense, I mean, think about that. All over the world, all day, all night, waves are washing up on the shore. One after another after another. And this is the picture here of grace piled upon grace upon grace.
0: It's the image of Jesus. Out of his fullness, we receive grace upon
1: grace. And it's because of his fullness that we receive it. When John writes of the, about the fullness of
0: Christ, He's talking about the full extent of his deity. He's describing the full weight of what it means that he is God in the flesh. This argument is similar to the one made by Paul about Christ when he writes in Colossians
1: 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So John points out that we receive grace upon grace
0: from the fullness of Jesus' deity. And this is evidence, again, that he is the one and only Son from the Father. Now, Daniel Webster lived in the 1800s, and he was a congressman from Massachusetts and later Secretary of State. In a story that's told of him when he was in the prime of life and in some of his highest positions, He was dining with a a company of literary men from Boston, Um, you know, a highbrow dinner here. During the dinner, the conversation turned to the subject of Christianity. Mr. Webster frankly stated and boldly his belief in the divinity of Christ and his dependence upon the atonement, death, and resurrection of Christ for his salvation. One of of the other men said to him, Mr. Webster, can you really comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? Mr. Webster promptly replied, No, sir, I cannot comprehend it. If I could comprehend it, he would be no
1: greater than myself. And I feel that I need a superhuman Savior. The grace upon grace that we receive from Christ's fullness of God
0: is the work of a superhuman Savior. And that's why John gives it as an argument that He is the one and only Son from the Father. And The third of these arguments he gives is that Jesus is better than Moses and the law. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As we will observe jesus's conversation with the jewish leaders we're going to read more than once that jesus about how he's better than moses moses should be highly regarded for being god's vessel for bringing the hebrews out of egypt as well he was used by god to bring the law of god to his people but the mosaic law was meant to show his people their sinfulness And their need for the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, is our source of grace and truth. Let me just conclude with these thoughts here.
1: As with Jesus being our source of life and light, as we read about in the first
0: verses of the chapter, grace and truth are two things that we cannot live without, just like life and light. My hope is that you'll find
1: from the Gospel of John, the grace that is as important as life itself. And we'll see that just as we need light, even though it may show us what we don't want to see,
0: we also, as our source of truth, will see Jesus is going to teach us what we may not want to hear,
1: but we do need to know. Thankfully, in Jesus, grace and truth go hand in hand.
0: And that is one of the reasons why we we can trust that he is what the Bible says he is. He's the God man. And we see Jesus in action when we see this. We will be even more encouraged to know that the intersection of grace and truth is what our God is all about. Jesus will be a picture of the Father
1: to us, just as he is God's final. First and final message to us uh, the closing point.